Hey, Bullers, you're listening to Bull After Bull, episode 17, on Friday, December 5th, 2014. If the river was whiskey and I was a duck, I'd dive to the bottom and I'd never come up with Terry Howell. Have I got you in? Welcome. Welcome to the show. We have a special repeal day prohibition era show for you. I'm Spencer Pearson. And I'm Lorian Rose celebrating this 81st anniversary of repeal day with y'all. So yeah, it's a, an important day in our country's history. And for anyone interested in the drug law reform movement, it's a day that we need to reflect upon the failures of alcohol prohibition and how those failures still continue today with our current drug laws. Uh, that, by the way, was a little bit of uh, Charlie Poole. A little prohibition era song there. That record was from 1930. Uh, Charlie didn't make Charlie didn't live through prohibition though. He died in 31. The year after that was recorded, and died from uh, complications due to alcohol abuse, which we saw. You know, uh, because of prohibition, a lot of the alcohol was unsafe to use, and abuse of uh, alcohol and other drugs went up during that time. So, uh, Charlie's kind of a representative of that, of like a, a one of the Many, many casualties of alcohol prohibition in the United States. Yeah, and uh, today we plan to show you how some of the same bad unintended consequences um, are repeating themselves that we saw in alcohol prohibition again today in the drug war. Right, so since, you know, we still try to fight drug use in this country using the prohibition model, uh, we're seeing a lot of the same bad unintended consequences. And so I'm going to kind of try and... Uh, take you back in time and show you where alcohol prohibition came from, who led the movement, uh, who got it passed, and uh, when and how it was passed, and for the reasons. And uh, they call it the noble experiment because you know uh, it really was well intentioned, but it turned out to be unenforceable and had a lot of bad unintended consequences that we're going to uh, get into and explain. And then Lorian will help me connect the dots to the drug war today and how these problems still exist, uh, just under a different. Uh, substance that's prohibited. So yeah, I talked about how uh, the noble experiment, it was called that because it had uh, really good intentions, you know, it had been started by people who had a genuine, uh, honest, need to help public health and to help society you know they saw alcohol abuse around them in their communities and they really wanted to put a stop to it you know uh many abolitionists uh became the temperance movement many women's suffrage activists bled into the temperance movement so these are all people who actually care you know they care about other people uh they have a lot of passion and they want to see society progress you know they're very progressive uh no one could have predicted in 1920 what the negative consequences would be and how bad it would get uh, under prohibition. You know, they were trying to just solve this thing and ended up making it worse. 
Right, and we see that today, too. Uh, the prohibitionists uh, fighting the war on drugs are mostly prevention specialists, um, public health officials, and drug abuse counselors who are concerned with public health and safety. Um, but actually, we have seen that prohibition causes an increase in use of the prohibited uh, substance. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, alcohol consumption rates during Prohibition, they soared. They shot up. Uh, even though uh, we saw heavy enforcement, we saw more money each year budgeted for uh, federal prohibition, for the Federal Prohibition uh, Bureau. We saw more federal agents out there enforcing it, busting people, chasing down criminals. Uh, and violent crime went up, theft went up, other crimes increased, as well as political corruption increased. Respect for the law, respect for cops, respect for law enforcement, that w- they were all at record lows. You know, People in general during Prohibition didn't support it. And when the people stopped supporting the law, they also stopped supporting those who m- enforced the law. You know, They saw them as the, the personification of a bad policy. And they found out in the end that no matter how hard they cracked down, no matter how many distilleries they busted up, no matter how many people they arrested and locked up, no matter how many bottles of gin they smashed in the streets, illegal alcohol still remained and thrived during Prohibition. Right, and we have the benefit of hindsight today, being able to look back on alcohol prohibition and see its failures and all the unintended bad consequences from it. And um, hopefully, you know, we can learn from those lessons to come up with real effective solutions uh, to the drug war today. Um, Also, I mean, as I said before, you know, prohibiting the use of drugs simply increases their use, which we've seen historically from alcohol prohibition. Right. And it just increases use and abuse. Uh, Drunken behavior resulting from the excessive use of alcohol has been frowned upon by parts of society for a very long time. But the idea that one should abstain from all alcohol, it didn't really gain much popularity, at least in the United States, until the early 1800s. Many political organizations kind of started to form then to try and lobby for legislative bans on all alcohol. Uh, One of the first of these groups was called the American Temperance Society, and they got started in uh, 1826 in Boston, in your neck of the woods, Lauren. Yep. Uh, Within a decade, the American Temperance Society had grown from that little group in Boston to an astounding 8,000 local chapters, and more than 1.5 million members across America uh, had taken the pledge to completely abstain from uh, alcohol use. So in 1851, uh, the temperance movement scored their first legislative victory. Uh, They passed the Maine Law. It was crafted by temperance activist Neil Dow, and the law banned liquor at the state level. Uh, So by 1855, they had succeeded in passing similar legislation in 12 other states. However, the outbreak of the Civil War, of course, in 1861, it kind of pushed temperance uh, back in the back burner, out of the spotlight. You know, uh, people were busy fighting a war. They didn't really have time to crusade for prohibition. Uh. After, however, the surrender of the Confederacy at Appomattox, peace returned to America. And so the temperance activists, they jumped right back on uh, their, their war on evils of beer and liquor. In 1869, the National Prohibition Party was founded. 
which is the oldest third party that's still active and in existence to today. Uh, although the support for the Prohibition Party has pretty much disappeared in recent decades, they still have convened to choose a political uh, presidential candidate every four years, ever since they were founded back in 1869. Uh, in 1873, the Women's Christian Temperance Movement formed, uh, and they took advantage of the gaining number of women coming out against uh, the use of alcohol. And they actually ended up being one of the more vocal and uh, powerful support groups of Prohibition passing. Uh, in 1881, Kansas became the first state to ban alcohol in its constitution. So we had the main law before, but this was actually a constitutional prevention, a constitutional ban, which is really the ultimate goal of all the prohibitionists. They wanted a prohibition of alcohol in their constitution as a constitutional amendment, and they wanted one at the national level as well. The movement uh, gained even more notoriety when Carrie Nation took it upon herself to enforce the Kansas law uh, she would enter illegal bars in Kansas and just smash everything in sight with a signature hatchet she used to carry around. Uh, by 1895, thanks in a large part to the press buzzing about uh, Carrie Nation's so-called hatchetations, public dissent against illegal bars had grown further, and the Anti-Saloon League was established. Uh, although the temperance movement had drawn early support from abolitionist activists, it's kind of interesting to note that the Ku Klux Klan was a major supporter of the Anti-Saloon League and uh, Prohibition. So when the 20th century rolled over, America had gone through rapid changes. Uh, the Industrial Revolution had truly come of age by 1900. American cities were starting to boom with industry. And, of course, because of this, immigrants from across the globe all flocked to the United States to get their uh, piece of the American dream, the golden opportunities that they heard of that lie across the ocean in America. Uh, immigrants often lived in impoverished conditions in urban areas, and because of that tight-knit ethnic community started to form. Irish, Italian, Jewish neighborhoods uh, formed in many United States cities, and immigrants kind of stuck together with others that they identified with. They, they had a familiar culture, they had a familiar language, they had familiar traditions. And so there was a clear social split in America between all these new immigrants and the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, also known as WASPs. So the wasps, they live simple kind of country folk lives. And, you know, they were all God-fearing, Christian, white, uh, you know, farmers, basically. And then these uh, immigrants, they saw as sort of living this fast-paced, dirty, sinful existence. So the wasps in America kind of felt like this was their native land and the foreigners had no right to move in and take their opportunities. And they quickly had forgotten, you know, that just a few decades earlier, their ancestors had come and taken and invaded and taken land from the Native Americans. So this might sound familiar. This still goes on today, you know, that in, the influx of new immigrants is always seen as an intrusion on a land that you intruded on originally. You know, it's, it, it's some things just never change. So in the years before uh, Prohibition actually took effect, uh, the Dries, as they were called, they achieved a few victories in anticipation of this national liquor ban of national prohibition. So the 16th Amendment passed in 1913, and this was key to prepare the American economy for prohibition. So before that, uh, the federal government was basically funded by uh, taxes on alcohol, and the alcohol trade had been longstanding in America. So uh, instead of liquor taxes funding the federal government, uh, it was replaced because of the 16th Amendment by the federal income tax, uh, which still is in effect today. That's still the 
primary funding of the federal government is through our income taxes. So in 1916, on the presidential trail, the wets versus dry battle was so divisive and politically diverse that neither Woodrow Wilson or Charles Hughes, who were the two presidential candidates, neither of them took a position on the matter uh, in their platform to run for president. Neither one of them wanted to touch it. No one wanted to come out for or against it because there was too many people for and against it on both sides of the ticket. Uh, In 1917, after Wilson won... However, uh, Congress wasted no time going for prohibition. Uh, They passed a resolution that called for a constitutional amendment banning all liquor in the United States. And that, you know, was the goal of prohibitionists the whole time, was to get this national ban uh, in place. So while they waited for the states to ratify that amendment, they passed the Volstead Act. Now, this act provided the legal framework for the government to enforce prohibition. Basically, the Volstead Act had three functions. The first obvious one was to prohibit intoxicating beverages. Uh, The second was to regulate the production, importation, and distribution of alcohol, which would achieve the first function. Uh, Though it did ban making and transporting alcohol illegal, it didn't specifically ban drinking alcohol. And so because of this, right before Prohibition passed uh, in 1919, a lot of Americans who could afford to stocked up heavily on liquor and beer uh, to survive through Prohibition as long as they could, you know, and uh, a lot of people during Prohibition still had little secret whiskey stashes from uh, bottles that they had acquired before the law came into effect. And that act actually officially went into effect after the 18th Amendment was ratified, and Prohibition officially began on January 17th, uh, 1920. Just like alcohol, cannabis had always been a part of American life. Every colonist in the Jamestown colony was ordered to grow 100 plants for export to England. Hemp was used for tons of things, including ropes, canvases, clothes, lighting oil, and house building materials. From 1631 until the early 1800s, hemp was accepted as a form of payment to encourage farmers to grow more. It was a cash crop, much like tobacco and cotton. People could pay their taxes with hemp and risk being jailed if they weren't growing any during a period of shortage. It's rumored that Benjamin Franklin started one of America's first paper mills with cannabis, allowing America to have a free colonial press without having to beg or justify the need for paper and books from England. Irish doctor William O'Shaughnessy, a physician with the British East India Company, is credited with the first popular er, with first popularizing the medical use of cannabis by showing others how it could ease the pain of rheumatism, rabies, cholera, and tetanus. Marijuana and hashish extracts were the most prescribed medicines in the United States from 1842 until the 1890s. No abuse or mental disorders were reported, aside from the occasional novice user becoming disoriented or overly introverted. By 1853, recreational cannabis was recognized as a fashionable narcotic. Oriental-style hashish parlors flourished by the 1880s, and New York City was said to have over 500 establishments alone. The Food and Drug Administration was established through the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 to combat the use of secret ingredients in patent medicines like morphine. This act required packaging labels to indicate the harmful effects of drugs, Um, And it also, it defined cannabis and alcohol as dangerous drugs with the potential to be poisoned, which required them to get these labels. 
in uh, from 1900 until the 1920s, uh, Mexican immigrants started to introduce the recreational use of cannabis. And they had flooded America in 1910 after the Mexican Revolution. But with this introduction of cannabis as a recreational substance, uh, it brought about a sort of fear and prejudice towards the Mexicans that became synonymous with the fear and prejudice of marijuana. And the term marijuana actually comes from Mexican Spanish. Here's a little clip that I found of a news report on a border patrol finding. What's this? What? No. You toting corn or hay? Si, <laughs> si, senor. I toting hay. What's so funny about that? Looks like hay. Yeah, Indian hay. Marijuana, that's what it is. Maradon. Oh, no, senor. You are mistaken. It's not marijuana. It's just uh, some piece of hay. Listen, I know marijuana when I see it. Now, the production value on that is just, it just, it's embarrassing, it's disgusting. But that was the news. That was what people were hearing, and they were thinking, oh my God, the Mexicans are bringing in this plant, and we don't know what it can do. Uh, so in 1911, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts became the first state to ban cannabis in the United States, and they were followed soon after by New York and Maine. Oh, Massachusetts, full of prohibitionists. They started both of them, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Now, drug use was defined as a crime under the 1914 Revenue-Producing Harrison Act, uh, which used a tax to regulate opium and coca-derived drugs. The tax was much higher than the cost of the drugs themselves, and uh, those who didn't pay the tax were punished. In 1931, prohibitionist Harry J. Anslinger was appointed to head the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and he traveled around the country giving speeches to judges, police, and unions on the evils of marijuana. He claimed cannabis caused people to commit violent crimes and act irrationally and overly sexual. And he also had a, uh, a quote where he said that if Frankenstein came upon marijuana, he would drop dead with fright. Uh, this leads me into another clip that I found of a news segment, which I've left in, uh, in wholeness. So give, give this a close listen. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> Here to report to you on the nation's nightmare is the noted CBS newsman, Bill Downs. You've heard a lot about dope the last few weeks, but here is a sound you have not heard before. CBS reporter Dave Moore was patrolling with a New Orleans police car when a call came through about a commotion just off Rampart Street. A man hopped up on marijuana had gone berserk. Our reporter recorded the sounds of that man, the crying of his mother, the screams of the neighbors. You won't like this sound, but it's important that you hear it. It expresses more than any words can do the savagery, the terror, the torture of the victims of dope. The inhuman growling you're about to hear is a man. <laughs> to the idea that marijuana causes no ill effects. Anyone who has heard that sound knows better. And that sound can be heard across the country, wherever the marijuana plant grows, and it grows in open fields almost everywhere. 
It can be heard where the plant does not grow, but where the peddlers do. So this fear propaganda started spreading like wildfire around America. And uh, yellow journalist William Randolph Hearst actually demonized cannabis and used his newspapers to spread a public perception uh, to, you know, to make the people uh, correlate the plant with violent crime. Now, uh, in 1937, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act, which made possession or transfer of cannabis illegal through the United States under federal law. The act excluded medical and industrial uses, um, but there is an expensive excise tax imposed there, and the American Medical Association opposed this act because the tax was imposed on physicians prescribing cannabis. So we kind of see there how uh, cannabis prohibition and how alcohol prohibition both got their starts. Uh, and they were kind of similar in the fact that they uh, pit sort of these sheltered white uh, ignorant uh, wasps against these unknown scary uh, immigrants in the cities. And, uh, you know, both took advantage of the same populations and the same fears and, uh, you know, exploited those same tactics to pass these prohibitions. Um, unfortunately, you know, almost immediately the law of prohibition began a series of escalating negative consequences. And, you know, in the 13 years that it was in effect, it never succeeded uh, in stopping or even slowing the manufacture, sale, distribution, or use and abuse of alcohol in the United States. Uh, legitimate business owners and legal operators, they were compliant with the law, and so they shut their doors and they had to find other work right in 1920 when the law went into effect. Uh, many winemakers in this country, they left their vineyards and they moved to other countries to continue their trade. You know, generations of winemakers, they're not just going to stop. They're going to continue their trade, their family legacy, but they're going to do it elsewhere. And, you know, they had to start over in their vineyards, too. It takes years to cultivate a grape vineyard to get uh, grapes good enough to produce wine. So they packed up and they left, and that was a detriment to the economy right off the bat. Uh, those bars that stayed open in defiance, they didn't very, last very long. They were all raided and boarded up. Uh, their supplies were all smashed and poured out in the streets. And the only operators left selling alcohol were the criminal gangs who made money on other legal activity. So although these uh, gangsters were the only people really in the alcohol market to benefit from prohibition, their benefits came at a huge risk. There was constant violence, double crossing, uh, you know, you had rival gangs shooting it up on the streets and they were each shooting it up with the cops and at, at any time they were all at risk for arrest for being shot in the back for 
potentially selling to an undercover prohibition agent. And, uh, you know, much like our black market for drugs today, the bootleggers, they didn't have to worry about the quality or the safety of their product. The customer would take what he could get. They also uh, enforce their territory. They, Like I said before, you know, they enforce their territory between rival gangs and also from the feds. Uh, if they wanted to expand their territory, they took it to the streets in a fight. And not even just in a fist fight, but in a machine gun fight. The machine gun was popularized and mass-produced at this time, uh, and the Tommy gun was a favorite of gangsters in the late Prohibition area. Uh, with the gains from running a bootlegging operation, uh, people like Bugs Moran and Al Capone, they gained incredible wealth, power, and political influence. They were able to buy off politicians, buy their way out of trouble, uh, and really they created a, a lot of violence and left a lot of dead bodies in their wake. Uh, Capone was able to buy political allies and government positions in Chicago, as well as uh, narcotics detectives who would look the other way in some of his trade. Uh, so we can see that Prohibition had made, American uh, had made American society a lot more dangerous and a lot more unhealthy, even though the intentions, they were exactly the opposite. What's that cat we see the problems caused by alcohol prohibition repeated in today's war on drugs. It took longer for some of these problems to come into public view because drug markets were not officially established in the United States prior to Prohibition, unlike alcohol. With the exception of World War II, when the government planted huge hemp crops to supply ropes to the Navy, criminal penalties for cannabis have gotten harsher over time. Uh, but increased penalties didn't deter crime. In fact, it actually increased the severity of crime because it made it, it, made it more risky for drug dealers to make sales. Um, but hold on, here we start. We see the problems caused by alcohol prohibition repeated in today's war on drugs. It took longer for some problems to come into public view because drug markets were not officially established in the United States prior to Prohibition, unlike alcohol. With the exception of World War II, when the government planted huge hemp crops to supply ropes to the Navy, criminal penalties for cannabis have gotten harsher over time. But increased penalties didn't deter crime, it just increased the severity of the crime. With higher penalties, criminals were more intent on protecting their turf by any means possible. Mandatory sentencing and increased punishment were enacted when Congress passed the Boggs Act of 1952 and the Narcotics Control Act of 1956. Under these acts, first-time cannabis possession led to a minimum of 2 to 10 years in prison with a fine of up to $20,000. 
The Marijuana Tax Act was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1969 because it violated the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. In 1970, Congress repealed mandatory penalties for cannabis offenses, but passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, which categorized substances based on their medical use and potential for addiction. Cannabis became a Schedule I drug, along with LSD and heroin. A year later, Nixon declared drug abuse as public enemy number one. The Drug Enforcement Administration was created during the Reagan administration to merge the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs with the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement. Reagan slowly strengthened drug enforcement by creating mandatory minimum sentencing and forfeiture of cash and real estate for drug offenses. He passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act following the cocaine overdose of black basketball star Len Bias, which appropriated an additional $1.7 billion to fund the war on drugs. George Bush pushed for CIA and U.S. military involvement in efforts to enforce drug prohibition. The trend has continued with the three presidents since then. Government agencies have been implicated in drug trafficking enterprises like CIA and Contra cocaine trafficking. The black market for marijuana makes an estimated $142 billion each year, almost double the amount brought in by cocaine. That's incredible. Yeah, uh, but Prohibition offers business opportunities to criminals like Pablo Escobar, who employ hitmen to take out any operational threats. Like I was saying before, you know, these increased penalties just lead to, uh, you know, the the bad guys have to up their game and protect themselves more, and so the costs of these drugs rise. Right. With uh, alcohol prohibition, you guys saw guys like Bugs Moran and Al Capone, and then with drug prohibition, you know, the similar gangsters arise, like Pablo Escobar, like George Young, with the cocaine trafficking, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the prohibition doesn't... Uh, erase demand. The demand is still there. Demand is still there in the market, and that demand will get met uh, by some means, you know. Yep. The the market will provide uh, a way. Yeah, and these uh, violent criminals will end up consolidating power, money, and using violence to enforce their business. Um, The war on drugs has caused soaring arrest rates that disproportionately target African Americans, who often receive stiffer penalties and sentences. 1.5 million Americans are arrested each year, and the Washington Post reported that one in five black Americans would spend time behind bars due to drug laws. A permanent underclass has been created by the war on drugs, made up of people with few educational or job opportunities as a result of drug offenses. In some states, they're even stripped of their voting rights. Missouri is one of those states, right? Right, yeah, felons can't vote here. Uh, you know, it's, it's a state by state thing. So, like in New Hampshire, felons can vote from uh, from prison while they're still in prison. Uh, but here, you know, once you get out with a felony drug conviction or a felony anything conviction, you're not allowed to vote anymore. Your voices have been taken away. Yeah, and another problem that we saw with alcohol prohibition, we see again today with the war on drugs and prohibition against drugs is. It's such a waste of money. Legalization of drugs would save almost $41.3 billion a year, according to a study that was published by a Harvard economist by the name of Jeffrey Moran. So when will enough be enough? On repeal day, it's important to remember every negative unintended consequence of alcohol prohibition that's been carried on today in the form of drug prohibition. The reasons for repealing alcohol can all be applied to the current war on drugs. Yeah, so 
uh, we saw a little bit about the the the, the dots that can be connected from uh, the beginnings of prohibition on both the drug war and alcohol. We saw the dots that are connected with all the negative consequences. So now I'm going to take you through how uh, prohibition was in, ended up being dismantled, and maybe we'll sort of you can see the similarities as to what's happening right now in this country, and uh, maybe kind of get a feel for what ultimately will happen and how things will improve eventually. Uh, after after the repeal of prohibition so the first sound of alarm uh for prohibition's end came from the medical professionals. They were all worried about the law's impact on availability of liquor used to treat common illnesses. Uh, it wasn't really uncommon to have a hot toddy if you had a cold, something like that, you know, just a little bit of uh, uh, liquor. In 1921, just a year into the prohibition uh, experiment, Congress held hearings on the medicinal value of beer. Uh, American doctors across the country also began lobbying for the repeal of prohibition of medicinal liquor. Charles Hansen Town, in 1923, published a book with this lengthy title, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, The Human Side of What the 18th Amendment Has Done to the United States. Uh, in the book, he cited a study of 30 major American cities that had found uh, during the first two years of prohibition, the number of crimes increased by 24%. Uh, additionally, theft and burglaries increased, increased by 9%. Homicides increased by 12.7%, assaults and battery rose by 13%, drug addiction rose by 44.6%, and police department costs all went up 11.4%. The harms of prohibition were all very clear, and they were immediate and well-documented. And so in 1925, uh, Baltimore journalist H.L. Mencken began writing about the failures of prohibition in the Baltimore Sun. The black market uh, also provided another problem. Gangsters would frequently steal shipments of legal industrial alcohol, such as rubbing alcohol, from the government agencies who were in charge of its manufacture and distribution. They would then uh, take it and they would distill it, usually very crudely, to make a poor quality gin. In an attempt to deter the use of this industrial alcohol for drinking purposes, the feds, they began to add deadly methyl alcohol to their industrial alcohol. They began cutting it with poisons so that when uh, people would use it, uh, they tried to, you know, deter drinking in this way so that it would be poisoned and undrinkable. But this really didn't stop people from drinking the stolen and repurposed liquor. Uh, like we said before, you know, the black market gangsters have no uh, reason to control quality. They have no reason to do anything except for keep the stuff coming. Keep it coming. Keep it moving. Keep it selling. They'll drink anything. And people would. People were desperate at the time to drink anything. Uh, and so it didn't stop people from drinking uh, the repurposed liquor, and it's estimated that up to 10,000 people died as a result of drinking the government poisoned alcohol during uh, the Prohibition era. So the final straw came after the holiday season in 1926. The body count from the drinkers celebrating Christmas was too big to ignore. Uh, it further angered the medical community, and public officials had to arrange a panicked press conference in New York City. New York City's medical examiner at the time, Charles Norris, was quoted as saying, The government knows it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol, yet it continues its poisoning processes, heedless of the fact that the people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible. So public support for prohibition had almost completely disappeared by the 30s. On March 22, 1933, Roosevelt signed the Cullen-Harrison Act. Uh, that went into effect in the same uh, year in April. 
That act legalized the sale of what was called 3-2 beer, and that's a beer which is no more than 3.2% alcohol by weight. So the very next day, uh, the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company in St. Louis sent a team of Clydesdales to the White House with a case of their Budweiser beer. People celebrated that Prohibition officially came to an end later that year on December 5th, 1933. The 21st Amendment was what repealed uh, the 18th Amendment, and it left the regulation and control of liquors to the states. In a similar way today, you know, we can see that states have already moved uh, to legalize medicinal use of, of, of cannabis. Uh, four states have actually legalized it completely, and... Uh, you know, maybe we will. What do you think? Will we see the day where uh, federally the, the states, fi they finally leave it up to the states? Oh, I think so. I hope so. I'm optimistic about it. But, of course, you know, the feds will probably swoop in eventually. Well, you never know until you find out. Uh, but we're really hard at work trying to make uh, Missouri added to that list of legalized states. And uh, we're pushing for 2016 as that, as that effort uh, culminates. We're going to be uh, gathering signatures all year next year in 2015 and, uh, you know, get, making sure that people are aware of the initiative and people are aware of the reasons why prohibition is so dangerous. Um, a lot of our work is going to be cut out for us in trying to talk to these prohibitionists and trying to explain them, look, we've done this before with alcohol and this is what happened. This is what's still happening today, you know, but... Uh, I think that uh, it's, it's important every repeal day to look back at alcohol prohibition. And really not just during repeal day, but uh, all the time. You want to be drawing those comparisons, those parallels to alcohol prohibition. We already know it doesn't work because look. Look in the history books. Look at what's happened. Look at, uh, you know, look at what good intentions with poor science and poor... Uh, poor execution look what happens this is what happens you know mm -hmm. and i mean we know the facts we know that prohibition you know worsened the problems that it was meant to solve and it created new problems that didn't exist before that so you know we see this happening all over again in the war on drugs so bowlers uh thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to our uh, special repeal day episode i hope that you've had some fun i hope that you've learned something along the way and uh, hopefully you'll be better informed to you know, talk to your friends and family about why prohibition, why drug prohibition hurts us so bad. Yeah, happy repeal day and Mayor Bowles burn ever brighter. <laughs> <laughs>